are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Welcome to the Joseph Campbell Foundation Podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. I'm your host, Bradley Olson. On this podcast, we share archived audio lectures given by Joseph Campbell over the course of his teaching and lecturing career. Today, we're listening to a smaller group discussion that Campbell and Bert Lowenberg held after the address Joseph Campbell made to Sarah Lawrence students on December 15, 1970. This address we listened to last month. Pertaining to the audio we're about to listen to, there are a few things that immediately stand out. First, there's a stark contrast between the formality of the address Professor Campbell gave and the easy informality of the discussion group we're about to listen to. And we get to meet Bert Lowenberg once again, who displays a great deal of intellectual generosity in making sure he allows Campbell to remain the center of attention on his special day. One cannot help but be affected by and infected with Campbell's enthusiasm and delight for discovery, for sharing his ideas, and for helping young minds to see the world differently than they previously have. And knowing that in seeing the world differently, they see themselves differently. Irony and examples of irony permeate these conversations, and it is proper that it does. Thomas Mann was the master of irony, of subtlety, and so expansive were the interiors of his characters that they, and we as readers, unconsciously live in the worlds built from their own inner lives. This literary wizardry is what Thomas Mann is rightfully known for. And his ability to create something astonishing out of nothing is just one more reason his family nickname, given to him by his children when he attended a costume party dressed as a wizard, was the magician. I think you'll enjoy this question and answer session with Joseph Campbell, Bert Lohenberg, and their Sarah Lawrence students. I think Campbell is often at his best fielding questions from his listeners, and his unbridled joy at being recognized and honored seems to stimulate even more than usual his unguarded and raconteurial qualities, making this a recording that's a pleasure to listen to. Now, I will say this, the audio ends abruptly in mid-sentence, but The story that Campbell's in the process of telling is reasonably well-known, and I'll fill in the rest of that story immediately after the audio ends. But now, here's Joseph Campbell. It's a a first-rate, fabulous, stunning pose in that. Then comes the transposed heads. Now, this transposed head is a very funny story. Um, A man whom I knew very well, Heinrich Zimmer, was publishing in a uh, little journal in in Switzerland um, some studies he was doing of um, oriental tales, which he was then developing in uh, depth psychological terms, gently, not pushing it, but playing with it that way. And Thomas Mann read this. This is from a work by a ninth century Sanskrit uh, author named Somadeva, and it's a story 
of um, a king. I'll, I'll tell you the story. A king who is um, holding court every once a week, uh, giving judgment. Now, when a person gives judgment, that implies that he knows how to give judgment. But, but also that there's a basis for judgment, you see. And uh, every judgment day, there would come to him a yogi and would hand him a fruit. And he would hand the fruit to his uh, treasurer. The treasurer would take the fruit, throw it over a wall, and forget <laughs> it. And this happened year for several years until one these yogis are very patient people. Uh, one fine day, a little monkey from the harem, one of the toys of the ladies in the harem, comes running out and grabs the uh, fruit, bites it, outfalls a priceless jewel. So uh, the king says to his treasurer, will you go see what's <laughs> happened to all those things? He went, instead of a pile of uh, just rotting fruit, there was this stacked heap of jewels. So the king was now in considerably in the yogi's debt. And uh, he uh, said to the yogi, uh, well, what is it you want? And the yogi said, well, I'm practicing magic at night down out on the burning grounds, and you come at midnight. And what he wanted was a human sacrifice for a rite that he was performing. <clears throat> so the king, who is a kingly man and uh, keeps his word and lives with integrity, uh, went out to the yogi. And there, you know, the, if you believe in spooks, then the burning ground at night is a spooky place, really. And the yogi said, well, now, uh, down the other end of the field there, there's a corpse. I'd like you to bring that to me. It's hanging from a tree. This person has just been hanged. Cut it down bring it here. So the king goes and picks up the corpse. He cuts it down, and when the corpse lands, he hears a voice. And he picks the corpse up, puts it on his shoulder, and starts across the field. And the corpse says to him, this is a curious undertaking that you're engaged in. Uh, would you like to hear a story? And uh, the king said, yes, I'd like to hear a story. What, what can you say? And uh, <laughs> the, uh, the corpse then says, now I'm going to tell you a story. It's a conundrum. And if you know the answer and don't give it, uh, your head will burst. So he gives him a story that involves some judgment at the end of some re terribly entangled thing, you see. And the king announces a judgment. The corpse isn't on his shoulder anymore. It's hanging back there. And he goes back 21 times he does this, you see. And one of the stories was this one, which uh, Mon picked up for the transposed heads. And the story is very briefly uh, of a... Um, two young men who were very close friends. This is a perfect Thomas Mann story. Um, one, a sort of intellectual, and the other, a, a, a person active. Subject and object of knowledge, Mann grabs that. Um, they are seated by a pool, and they see a girl bathing down the way, and the intellectual falls in love with her and wants to marry her. And so they work it out that he does get married. But when they're married, she falls in love with the other boy. And they are one day out driving with the other one driving the little carriage, the tonga, and the married couple in the back. 
and they come to a um, temple of Kali, the goddess of time who consumes, to whom all the human sacrifices were made. And the husband, knowing the situation, it's a painful situation, goes into the temple. He says, wait a minute here. Goes into the temple and doesn't come out. What he did was pick up a sacrificial sword that he saw there and cut off his own head uh, to the goddess. So um, they're waiting and he doesn't come out. So the young man says, well, uh, the other one says, well, I'll go in and see what's happened to Sri Daman or whatever his name was. And he goes in and he sees this uh, situation. He realizes what's happened. So he takes the sword, cuts off his head. Now the girl's waiting, and uh, she goes in, and look what she beholds. Well, the voice of the goddess says, take the heads and put them back on again, you little ninny, you know, that kind of thing. Well, she puts them on wrong way around. Well, this is good for the psychologist. And uh, so Ron picks it up, and Timmer, well, I knew him very well at this time. He said, I put just a little bit of Freud in as bait, and Thomas Mann bit. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the, the, this is where the Indian story ends. And then the corpse asks the king, whose wife is she? Well, now, Mann continued from there. He picked it up from there. and. Uh, he has it that they go to a yogi. Well, that yogi that he depicts is a gorgeous one. It's a Jain yogi, and Jain yogis are stark naked, and uh, they have a little broom to brush the path so they shouldn't step on any living thing. And uh, he has this crotchety yogi with his broom dusting the path, and they come and they ask, to whom is uh, she married? And uh, he said, marriages of the body. She's married to the body. That's not the answer she wanted. Uh, because as she gets the inferior body and the stupid head, you see. And uh, so she said, uh, really, or something like that. And then Mon has him go in, put a little kilt on, and he comes out. The marriage is to the head. <laughs> Clever. And uh, so it's, it's decided that way. She marries the head. That's the, the uh, intellectual head with the physical body. Well, now Mont does a marvelous thing. The intellectual head is sedentary. So the body's sedentary and gets to be fat. The other one uh, goes off into the forest to be a yogi, you know, to forget it all. And uh, this is a head that makes the body work, so this body's beginning to be pretty good. And uh, she's there. This is the kind of girl you don't want to marry. Uh, she begins thinking of the one who's out in the woods, you know? And uh, then uh, on it goes. And uh, Mon had the whole thing uh, tied up in that way. Well, it just happened when that book was published in America, it was published first in German, and it was from Zimmer. And uh, then both Zimmer and Mann were here in New York when, about the time it came out. And Zimmer's brother-in-law, his uh, Zimmer's wife was the daughter of uh, von Hofmannsthal, oh, Christiana yeah. von Hofmannsthal. Her brother, Raimon, at that time was uh, working for Time magazine. Well, he knew all about this. So he went to Zimmer and said, what do you think of Thomas Mann's 
work, you know. And Tim was a genial fellow, and he knew Mann and all this, and he said, well, it's a bit Wagnerian. <laughs> so this was published then, you see, and then in the English American edition, uh, Mann dedicated the thing to, to Zimmer. But I had a funny episode in relation to that, because Mrs. Meyer, whose little note mm -hmm. I read, mm -hmm. wasn't that amusing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, she gave me this thing in the manuscript, this uh, heads, and she said, Tommy has gone crazy on some uh, Indian theme, and she said, I don't want him to make a fool of himself, so uh, I, I wonder if you'd read it. Well, I read it, and uh, I, I knew Zimmer and so on, and it seemed to me perfectly all right, kind of fun. But he had a little Sanskrit in there, and it was just a little bit wrong. The tense was a little wrong. And I um, made a suggestion, but uh, when I handed it back, she brought it back to Tommy. She tells me, no, he had given it to a Sanskritist, and so he was, so I told this to Zimmer. Zimmer was the Sanskritist. And he said, oh, there was a mistake. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> he said, I just looked through it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I, I thought it was rather fun. That's the for Tausch and Kupfer. But the, uh, this was Thomas Mann in that baffled period. He really was baffled and, and, and uh, was trying to... Oh God, he worked on the um, Joseph things for five years already, you know, and uh, then comes this terrific break, and how do you pick up pieces like that? He had to do the whole thing of Joseph in the Pharaoh's um, service. He got him all through with Potiphar's wife and all. It was marvelous. And then he had to get him out into, into Pharaoh and have the whole family come. And all it turned out to be was a kind of uh, plodding, naturalistic How old narrative. were you then, Joe? Well, uh, mine was born 75, yeah. and that book came out 43. He's an old man, man. Some of the themes that you were bringing up today somehow reminded me of that astonishing uh, thing with Mishima and his harakiri a couple of weeks ago. You remember that? The well, now, what were some of the Japanese? things that did that? Well, I don't know, the, the, the living out of a mythology. Oh, yeah, right. And, and going with it all mm -hmm. the way. Mm -hmm. Yes? Uh, well, this is a different subject, but I was thinking uh, when you mentioned Faust a couple of times, mm. uh, what your feeling is about what Thomas Mann would have been like if Goethe had never lived or written. Well, Mann deliberately and um, explicitly, he says it many times, was living the imitatio Goethe. He was living the imitation of Goethe. And uh, he identified himself in a very playful way, ironically, with the Goethe. And, um, for instance, the Lotte in Weimar is such an echo of Goethe's Walfewandschaften, or one of those uh, novels. But even in the story, it's not getting Right. Right, one after another. I was another. taking that long for the Joseph stories, and Beth is working practically his whole life on a thousand. That's right. Mm -hmm. and, then and that endurance thing, writing, he wrote every day. And, so did and his books on the shelf are like that. 
But he describes a writer so much like himself as von Aschenbach. Aschenbach, well, he does a thing that Joyce does also, describes himself leaving out one trait, the trait that rescues him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you just omit that, and you've got the character you would have been had it not been for this rescuing character, and it uh, accents the, uh, the, the problem. What was he getting at in Mario and the Magician? That was against the, uh, um, that was when you had the fascism in Italy, it was Mussolini. Uh, right after the World War, just when he'd really finished the Magic Mountain, he said he was so sick of history that he wanted to write something that didn't have anything to do with history, and he wrote that wonderful thing, Man and His Dog. Have you ever read that? This is marvelous, just timelessness, a man and a dog, nothing historical. Uh, and then after that, he wrote uh, wrote um, that lovely little thing, Sorrows, Early Sorrows. Disorder and Early Disorder Sorrows. Disorder and Early yeah. Sorrows. By his family. Mm -hmm. He had a number of things that uh, have references to, the, to his family. But uh, the, the astonishing thing that I mentioned in the talk was how early he started. Those uh, very early stories, 19... 1896, 97, 98. Then there's a novel, I call it a little novel, it's 500 pages, uh, that you never hear about, Royal Highness. Um, this came out around 1910. That was a period when he was working very painstakingly. Now, he had used throughout his writing career the device of the leitmotif, which he took over from Wagner. It's particularly clear in the Buddenbrooks, where wherever he mentions Tony, it's her upper lip, you know, and somebody else is another trait, just like the uh, leitmotif of Wagner, and then he plays these against each other. Well, in this amusing little story, it's a fairy tale about a little prince with a withered arm, like, uh, like Wilhelm, uh, in a dilapidated uh, little pr provincial capital, and uh, he falls in love with an American girl, and her father is a millionaire, and for the good of the kingdom, uh, they're to marry, but that wasn't what inspired them. I mean, the kingdom's just hoping it'll happen. Uh, and it's the story of the little knight and the, <coughs> the girl guarded by the dragon, the American father. And he writes it as a fairy tale, do you see? And in that, the leitmotif comes back in a very mechanical way. So you don't get the sense of life. You get the sense, rather, of a kind of puppet play. It's, it's, a, it's a very clever piece. It's a lovely piece. And there's a pedagogue in there named Herr Überbein, who is a kind of combination of Senebrini and Nachter. Another thing about Sedembrini and Nafta, they are Thales and Anaxagoras in the Faust, where the little homunculus who's to be born is between the two, the two theories of evolution that in Goethe's time were uh, prominent, the Aquarian idea that the world evolved slowly with deposits of water, and the volcanic, that it came in explosions. And these are the two men, progress by slow process and progress by the... Blood of the Balsons is a fascinating story. Yes, well, um, that had to do with something in the family also. That was an early thing. About, about the time of death in Venice, I think, that came. The, were, there, were, there, were there any, uh, I didn't know that there were any uh, 
intermarriage with uh, any Jewish intermarriage in the Mahan family. Well, there was something in the family. It's, uh, I don't know the story, but uh, I've heard, uh, you know, under the mm -hmm. table remarks about this. It was a shameful thing, and he was a little bit dissolute even in being for <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Why does he go back to Joseph and those tales? I mean, at the beginning of a mythological thing, which is significant and represents the era. I mean, why did he stop there or start there? Stop or stop where? In other where? words, he picked the time of Joseph in his story yeah. as symbolic of, of a whole in the in the uh, magic mountain there's that snow scene it's a vision and it's a vision of a Mediterranean world with comely people and it has mythological import now the Joseph novels are written in that spirit it's as though that dream had been opened out into the Joseph why he chose the Joseph was, uh, I didn't stress it, the talk, because it was getting late. But uh, when uh, Mont speaks in that Freud talk about his um, reading of Jung and how Jung opens up the oriental idea of the gods, the gods not as um, reified, as things, as entities, as final terms, as in the case of Yahweh, who is there, uh, but the gods as psychological projections, do you see? Uh, he sees a, disp a, a contrast here, a pair of opposites. And what he was trying to do was deal with the uh, biblical god in oriental terms, ironically. That's what he did. And he selected that because the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the story of the emergence of the biblical deity and concept of deity. Um, also, it has the mythological story of the plunge into the abyss and the return. Jacob goes into the desert, finds his Rachel by the well, has uh, his family, and comes out of the mm -hmm. desert. Joseph goes into Egypt, stays in Egypt, but becomes the provider of Israel at the time of the uh, famine, you see? So he's, he's got the stories there. And he has two generations, the father's generation and the son generation, Jacob the father, Joseph the son. Now the father generation represents the um, sort of genial living out of the myth. The father doesn't know what he's doing. It, it takes place, you, he, and he lives the myth. The son knows the myth and lives it intentionally in the way of the, um, of the um, conscientious duplicity that I'm talking about. When he comes to Potiphar, uh, Potiphar is a eunuch and he speaks to Potiphar as though Potiphar transcended sex. As Mon says, as though one minus one equal two. Do you see? Uh, but, and that is conscientious duplicity to make Potiphar feel good, but he wanted to make Potiphar feel good because Potiphar needed comfort and he would be there to comfort him and then he'd be close in on Potiphar. You see what I mean? This is a way to get on. And it's very different from the mood of the Hans Kostorp. And I had a, a nasty thought. 
in relation to Man and Joyce, uh, that with Man, in the final work of the myth, he deals with a character who learns how to get on through the myth, and Man learned how to get on. Man got on fine. Uh, Joyce, however, sided not with um, Jacob, but with Esau. Esau. He was the rejected one, and uh, it, it gives a much more... Now, there is a, another very interesting little thing, which I didn't want to talk about in the, in the big group, but special here. When uh, my um, uh, Scout and Key to Finnegan's Wake came out, Mrs. Meyer sent a copy to Mann. And in the letters from Thomas Mann, Thomas Mann's letter, which was published a couple of years ago in, in, in uh, Germany, there is the, a letter that he wrote to Mrs. Meyer in 1944 after having read The Skeleton Key. Uh, now this is, uh, is an extremely interesting thing. He was very uh, grateful for it and glad that he could read it because he couldn't read Finnegan's Wake. And here's what he said. Uh, he said, I have a feeling that Joyce may be the greatest literary genius of the age. That from Thomas Mann, is something. And he said also, um, just a, two sentences later, uh, I felt again reading this a relationship which, however, I don't like to talk about, to think about, because if there is one, he has done everything so much better, more g boldly, and in such grand lines. This from Thomas Mondry. And his score went way up in my thinking on reading that. This was not meant for world publications in a private letter, but now it is. But once he, I remember he wrote a wonderful preface to Anna Karenina saying, if I could ever have approached anything of his magnitude. He, uh, well, uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were two of his models, uh, particularly Tolstoy. There was another thing that I didn't bring out that um, I uh, wished to, but uh, the time was running. At the end of Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy, he uh, speaks of Socrates. Socrates is his enemy, representing the decadence, the attempt to correct life, the fear of things, and, and also this uh, always talk, talk, talk with boys, and also uh, the uh, discomforting of the bourgeois, you know, asking, do you sleep with your whiskers under the covers or over the covers? And then you don't, from then on, ever get any sleep because you don't know where they are. And uh, so um, he uses Socrates as his um, negative man, the example of the decadence. And uh, uh, Socrates had a negative muse who always told him not to do things. Uh, as Nietzsche says, this is a pathology of nature, do you see, when the muse tells you no instead of yes. And he asks, you know, with Socrates, that's the end of the Greek culture. It opens with vigorous, life-affirming and competent people, ruthless brutes. And then when you get this refinement, the culture finishes. Uh, because the person's really a, a, afraid of life, not afraid of death. I mean, the, the uh, end of Socrates is sympathy with them toda again, you see, sympathy with death. Um, Nietzsche asks at the, at the end of this, and this is one of the inspirations for Spengler also, why is it that when things come into the intellect, and the intellect is thinking, 
It always takes a culture apart. It criticizes, but can't furnish an act. Uh, and then he says, can we not have and look forward to a music singing Socrates? And that became Mann's ideal, the music singing Socrates, in which he would combine the Apollonian principle, which delights in the individual form. That's Thomas Mann's incredible descriptive power. God, the way he would see and then the words he would find, it's incredible. There isn't a, an invisible character in, his, in that whole panorama that he presents. And then, in the light motif that he repeats, and his beautiful musical <coughs> prose, his, his writing in German is, is an oceanic writing. You have the Dionysian, you see, of the music. The Apollonian art is sculpture. The Dionysian is music. And then he always tells you everything. Just what he's talking about comes out. He tells you. That's the Socratic man, do you see? I had a very interesting uh, thought occur in comparing Joyce and Mann, because they are brothers. They do come right down the line together. Mann was a Protestant. Joyce was a Catholic. And they both come out of their backgrounds, do you see? A Catholic is brought up with mythological images. You go into a Catholic home, there's the Madonna, there's Christ with his heart, as Bloom says, on his sleeve. And uh, they're all, and one's brought up with the mythological images. The problem of a Catholic, uh, I know because I was brought up what, that way, is to reconcile yourself to the world. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the myth from beginning to end before you're out of your diapers. But uh, the world, uh, how do you relate it to it? Whereas the Protestant, you go to a Protestant home, you see pictures of ancestors and horses and dogs and things like that, and uh, they're living in... Uh, no, this is true. And uh, Mann, in his uh, Buddenbrooks and in his Tonio Kriger and in his Magic Mountain, always talks about the ur-ur-ur-ur-grossfather, the grandfather, the great-grandfather, great, and the sense of religious awe that comes with the family. Now that relates to Israel, which has the same thing, you know, God on the top, just for this little family. And here the Protestant and the Hebrew go together, and the henceman with the uh, Joseph. I mean, mm -hmm. this is very much, you know, when you think of Joseph and the gods of Abraham and Isaac and all that, the whole family line. This is not the way of the Greek or the Catholic, because Catholicism is a kind of Greek. Um, so Joyce is brought up with the myth. Mann comes to know it, do you see? Mm -hmm. in, in the course of his writing, Joyce starts with it as a problem all the way, and he's, he's in it. I mean, Finnegan's waiting, he's waiting all in it all the time, and Mann is coming into it. But there's another amusing thing. When a Catholic priest recites mass, performs mass formally, he used to have his back to the congregation, do you see? And it doesn't matter whether anybody's there or not. The mass works because what he's doing is consecrating the host. He's bringing God, the divine power, into the world. And it doesn't matter whether there's an audience there or not. But what is a Protestant service without a congregation? Instead of an altar, you have a pulpit. And so Joyce 
presents these miracles without telling you what they're about. And if you can't read it, okay, it's going to work anyhow. But Mann is always explaining the same, the, uh, in everything he does, so that you can actually use the magic mountain as a key to Ulysses. Really? Really? You'd be amazed, the number, and they, they had nothing to do with each other. Uh, the, the number of motifs that recur, uh, there's one motif, and of course, T.S. Eliot read the manuscript for Ulysses just before he did the Wasteland, so you get the same thing in there, too. Uh, you get exactly the same motifs of the drowned man and the uh, this, the that, and the other, and uh, finally, the thunderclap. In the middle of Ulysses is the thunderclap, which represents the beginning of fluency, of flow. Uh, you're in this stuck dead world, and there's the flow. The thunderclap at the, age, at the end of the uh, wasteland in, in Eliot, the thunderclap in the middle of Ulysses where it starts the flow, the thunderclap at the end of the magic mountain, bing, bing, bing. The same mythological image of the voice of God and so forth. At the end of the, at the, end of the wasteland, I remember it's give, sympathize, and control, right? Now, how do you relate that to Hans Kastorp's going into battle at the end of Magic Mountain? He's giving, giving his life. Mm -hmm. He's sympathizing, his compassion for his people, mm -hmm. and he's in control as a soldier would be. I see. I never understood that. that I know, uh, you know, we've come to another kind of thinking. We, we think the world should be without war. I mean, we're yeah, correcting. Yeah. We're the correctors. We're yeah. everything that um, Mann really. was not in that novel. Yeah. And uh, this, I've always thought of it as equivalent to the end of the <coughs> Gita, where uh, Krishna says to Arjuna, get in there and fight. If, if you are the man you say you are, who is in control of his thinking and is doing his duty, well, here it is. Well, is this anything like the tragic hero at the end of the Greek drama? Uh, of course, in India, you can't have a tragic hero because uh, 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 where you have reincarnation, you can't have tragedy. Mm -hmm. uh, everything rests well in God, and uh, that's that. But when you are stressing the individual instead of the reincarnating principle that puts bodies on and puts them off, mm -hmm. you can have tragedy. The tragic attitude is based on seeing that life is temporal, mm -hmm. that death lives in it. That's the tragic vision. And then affirming it. And then affirming it, right. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened at the end. Mm -hmm. Death is of a piece with this thing. What does, how, how should Hans not mm -hmm. be able to affirm the war after he's seen his own grave mm -hmm. in his living hand? Mm -hmm. It's extremely positive book that way. But, uh, but now we would say that wasn't positive. It's a, we've reversed the values. The reason I ask is that we're, we got uh, talked into doing the Cretan Woman, or talked us into doing it, and Tris over here is playing it, and we were there madly trying to make uh, relationships because we don't really fully understand Phaedra uh, yet and, and the meaning of the myth as Jeffers treats it. You know, he took it out of Euripides' Hippolytus. And is she affirming life and what she does, and is she not? And we would rather think at this point that she may be, but too late. 
Well, Jeffers has this idea of, uh, you know, tragedy that breaks man's face and the white fire flies out of it, vision that fools him out of its limits, mm -hmm. desire that fools him out of its limits, these cut eyes in the mask. Uh, to break the humanistic mask, this hand that's seen in daylight, and then to see the, the death in it and open to death, uh, Jeffers was just uh, fierce on that line. All those incest motifs mm -hmm. in his epics and all have to do with breaking the, the fundamental bounds of humanism. Of humanism, I see. And she represents that. She and, does. And how does Theseus come into that? That he's the humanist? Yes. She breaks. Right. He's the hero. Thank you. Thank you. What was Freud's response? What did he do? He, I can't imagine. I just can't imagine uh, when, when you read that thing and realize that Freud, 80 years old, is an old, old man, and, and he had done a, a, a big thing, and those poor people who invited Mann to do this, you know, what they must have been thinking, and it went on. And, and then right at the end, you see, after he has said um, what a, a wonderful thing it is to find the biography, the individual, melting into the typical, the, the myth, do you see? And all biography melts into the typical, and he just said that all Freud did was repeat what had already been done, you know, in the beginning of the thing. And then he says uh, what a, a new wisdom it gives to the artist to live consciously in enactment of the myth, do you see? And to see the world simply living the myth it gives, and now he's looking at Dr. Freud. <laughs> he says it gives the artist eye a, uh, an advantage, you know, over the naive object. And, oh, he said, also, it, it, it is like a festival. Now, that's the word he used in the beginning, you see, in that it brings the past present. It makes the past present. And then he went on, he tacked on to absolutely you just know, contrived paragraphs to try to get the future in on this thing, Freud, and the future was his thing. And he said, uh, well now, as for the future, uh, Freud's uh, psychology is going to be the initiating move of a new anthropology. Uh, uh, and he had already just said that it had been anticipated by by uh, Schopenhauer and, and Nietzsche anyhow. And he said later, that all that will remain of Freud after 40 years will already have been anticipated in Nietzsche. I have some indication how those Freudian people, not necessarily Sigmund, but how the Freudian people felt by having watched very closely some Freudians in the audience this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew this was going to be dangerous crowd. Look what I did. And I, I did feel a little bit, um, what can I say, bold, adventurous in uh, striking out at the <laughs> Freudians, at the uh, political, uh, um, uh, what do we call them now? Um, um, no, uh, people who are supposed to be for the open society. Um, liberals, they're supposed to be called. And also, the Marxists. 
I had the whole constellation of Sarah Lawrence <laughs> out there in front. I just said, I'm going to make believe. I'm absolutely indifferent to this. This is too fun. <laughs> well, the description of NAFTA is, tells everything, doesn't it? Well, you know, it's really remarkable when one starts to think about Freud, great though he was and all the things that he did, how he was quite unaware of certain intimate lines of development which you know, implied what he said, not only mythology and a lot of other things, but the history of the idea of the unconscious in Western Europe for 250 years. And he'd never read anything about he, it. That doesn't detract from what no. the impact, but it's still true. It's like Darwin, for example, didn't really know, uh, even later, after the sixth edition, when he corrected, he didn't know the history of evolutionary thought. Yeah, that Goethe had it all no. in the well, uh, morphology there. Johnson. Uh, this, uh, very, very well, the thing about that, though, is it's just a, it's just a different form. I mean, one's an applied, you know. Yeah, well, that's the point. That's the QED. Yeah. It's the scientific <laughs> demonstration in actual medical practice right. of Which the. Which doesn't invalidate it at all. It just no, nobody form. invalidated this. Yeah. Uh, they were just uh, def <coughs> deflating it a little bit. But the Freud Jung uh, thing is awfully, awfully funny. I just brought, uh, sent to the publisher a Viking portable Jung. Ah. And uh, I had to write a little introduction. And um, this led me, of course, to review the whole history of, of Jung. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was already a well-established physician. Mm -hmm. Uh, at the Berkeley Sanitarium in um, in uh, Zurich, when he uh, sent a paper that he had written to Freud, mm -hmm. but the um, funny thing there is that Jung became interested in psychology by way of um, occult experience. Did, did you, do you know this thing that happened where he was sitting at home one day and um, his mother was in the next room? He was a student and his father had died, and so living uh, in Zurich with his mother and the door was open between the two rooms and he heard in the other room a crack like a shot of a pistol and he went in and a table that had been in the family for years had split right to the middle two weeks later he came home and his mother and the maid and his sister were in great excitement They'd heard a bang like that again, and where was it? And they were looking for it, and they opened the bread cabinet, little bread cabinet, and in the bread basket there was a steel knife which had cracked in four parts, and the bread basket was quadrangular, and one the handle was here, and in each of the four corners, in a regular mandala, Jung said, I've kept those to my dying day, those parts of those things. That's in the autobiography. Yeah, that's the autobiography, not concept. I think this whole thing that I'm about to say is there. This interested him, uh, well, oh wait, uh, very soon later he learned that there were a group of his friends conducting seances only a few miles away with a young girl about 15 and a half years old who was a medium. And they invited him to participate, which he did for two years, taking notes on all the seances. And then when she began to lose her power, she began to cheat and he quit. Then when he uh, decided to be a psychiatrist, and he became leading the main psychiatrist in, or uh, second lead, under Bloiler in the, uh, the sanitarium, 
he wrote his doctor's thesis on those experiences. It was a psychological interpretation of a paradoxical phenomenon, apparently occult phenomenon. Then, um, in the next paper, he was dealing with the problem of suppressed uh, emotions, and he found that Freud's interpretation of the mechanism of repression was very useful. Not Freud's sex theory, but the mechanism of repression. He sent his paper to Freud, Freud sent for him, and he came to Vienna, and they spent, what they say, about 18 hours in conversation. And the next year, Freud insisted that he should become the president, permanent president of the International Psychoanalytic Society. So this isn't a student of Freud by any means. He was a student of Bleuler and in Paris of Janet. And uh, then he becomes a colleague <coughs> of Freud. Well, now he was interested in occultism and Freud was not. Freud uh, rejected it. So when Freud said, uh, now you are going to be my um, anointed um, mm. follower, mm. his first question was, what is your opinion of occult phenomena? And Freud rejected this so strongly that Jung was filled with sort of wrath, you know, but he was younger and he didn't want to be rude and all, so he repressed it. And he felt something like fire building up in the neighborhood of his diaphragm, and there occurred an explosion in the bookshelf. And he said, <laughs> he said to Freud, you have just experienced a projected catalytic phenomenon. And Freud says, oh, bosh. And he said, it's going to happen again. And bang, it did happen again. And, and, and in, in, the, uh, in, the, um, in the biography, they have a letter from Freud trying to interpret it in terms of the, the bookshelf was kind of heavy, you know. And, and Well, then next year, they're coming to America together to... Um, received PhD degrees or something like this Clark. from uh, hmm? Clark. a Clark University. Yes. And they're going to embark together. <laughs> and uh, of course, Freud now has made him his son, so Freud's full of Oedipus complex, and he's afraid <laughs> his son's going to kill him. That's so uh, when they meet in Bremen to cross, uh, Jung had been reading of what are called the Bog people. Uh, these were corpses that were found in bogs in uh, Denmark uh, preserved by the tannin in the bog water and dating from the stone from the Iron Age of about 500 AD. And so when Jung arrived, he was very much interested in these bog people and thought he might be able to see some in the museum. And he begins talking about bog people. Freud begins to get squirmy because his, <laughs> he, as he told him later, he, he felt he was having death wishes. And Freud says to him, why are you always talking about these bog people? And uh, then in the morning, just before they depart, Since the recording ended abruptly, just as Professor Campbell was in the middle of telling the story of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung's increasing alienation from each other, which began on this voyage to America. Let me finish the story. You'll recall that Freud and Jung developed an intensely close personal and professional relationship. By the time they were set to sail for America and Clark University in 1909. And just for perspective, for Campbell, unlike ourselves perhaps, 
This was not ancient history. Campbell would have been five years old at the time. Initially, it was only Freud who was invited to Clark. But there seems to have been some behind-the-scenes maneuvering between G. Stanley Hall and Freud, or at least those acting on Freud's behalf, and eventually an invitation was extended to Jung as well. Since Hall was well aware of the work Jung had done with reaction times in his word association experiments, which seemed to provide evidence for the unconscious process. Many other psychologists were invited to attend, but it seems clear that for Hall, Freud was the main focus of the gathering. As Professor Campbell noted, Freud, Sandor Ferenczi, a Hungarian psychoanalyst, and Jung met in Bremen to board the ship to America. The tension between Freud and Jung started at lunch the day before they boarded the ship when, as Campbell noted, Jung kept discussing the bog men he was fascinated by. Now, Jung recounts this in his memoir, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And I'm quoting now from that book. In Bremen, the much-discussed incident of Freud's fainting fit occurred. It was provoked indirectly by my interest in the, quote, peat bog corpses. They were bodies of prehistoric men who either drowned in the marshes or were buried there. This interest of mine got on Freud's nerves. Why are you so concerned with these corpses? He asked me several times. He was inordinately vexed by the whole thing, and during one such conversation he suddenly fainted. Afterward, he said to me that he was convinced that all this chatter about corpses meant I had death wishes toward him. I was more than surprised by this interpretation. So the men uh, boarded the ship the next day, and during the eight-day voyage, they went for walks on deck, they had long conversations, and they interpreted each other's dreams. When they arrived in New York City, the American psychoanalyst A.A. Brill, picked them up from the port and gave them a tour of New York City. Brill took them to Chinatown, Coney Island, Tiffany's. I don't know if they bought anything there or not. Coney Island, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and Columbia University. They even took in a moving picture, something Freud and Frenzy had never seen before. Jung went alone to visit the New York State Pathological Institute, which was on Ward's Island, just north of Manhattan, on the Harlem River. Jung and Freud walked through Central Park and discussed more dreams. When they visited the Columbia University Psychiatric Clinic, they walked outside and were looking at the rocky escarpment of the Palisades across the Hudson River when Freud suddenly experienced a bout of incontinence and wet himself. Jung took Freud back to their hotel in a cab and suggested he analyze Freud to avoid further embarrassing moments. Once again from his memoir, here's Jung's recollection. Freud had a dream. I would not think it right to air the problem it involved. I interpreted it as best I could, but added that a great deal more could be said about it if he would supply me with some additional details from his private life. Freud's response to these words was a curious look, a look of the utmost suspicion. And then he said, But I cannot risk my authority. 
At that moment, he lost it altogether. That sentence burned itself into my memory, and in it, the end of our relationship was already foreshadowed. Freud was placing personal authority above truth. Now, these were two very different people, Freud and Jung, and their friendship never really stood a chance. Reading their correspondence, I think it's clear that these two extraordinarily strong-willed, strong-minded people would mix together about as well as oil and water. The two men experienced their longish sojourn in America very differently. Jung, for instance, was wildly enthusiastic about the U.S. and its culture, while Freud was quite dismissive, saying later that America is a mistake, a giant mistake. Freud disliked the informality of Americans, and he thought that Americans sublimated their sexuality into a destructive obsession with money. After this 1909 trip to America, their relationship continued to deteriorate, and each man harbored more and more resentment until, in 1913, it came to a bitter end. Two things to read that shed a great deal of light on the relationship between these two men are Deirdre Baer's biography of Jung, titled Jung, a Biography, and John Belinsky's 1969 article in the Andover Newton Quarterly, titled Jung and Freud, The End of a Romance. I promise you won't be disappointed by either of these reads. So with that, Let's go back to the beginning of the recording where Professor Campbell, with obviously great delight, calls Thomas Mann's address a first-rate stunt. And he makes a reference to transposed heads. Now, at first, it's not really clear what that is about. This is a reference to a novella Mann wrote in 1940 titled in English, The Transposed Heads of which Campbell later gives a very brief synopsis. This book of Mann's was based on Heinrich Zimmer's book, The King and the Corpse, Tales of the Soul's Conquest of Evil. In many ways, that book belongs as much to Campbell as it does to Zimmer. Zimmer, who had become Campbell's close friend and mentor, died suddenly in 1943 while still at work on the manuscript of what would later become this book. As an act of friendship and as a way to acknowledge all that Zimmer had meant to him and done for him, Campbell agreed to pull together all Zimmer's materials and finish the book, putting his own creative work on hold. The materials that Campbell inherited consisted of Zimmer's notes, some typed, some handwritten by Zimmer in many different languages, including German, Sanskrit, and English, among others, and much marginalia scrawled in the various books Zimmer was studying. Campbell's biographers write that when Campbell was stumped or didn't know what to write, he closed his eyes for a moment, and it seemed as if Zimmer was giving him dictation. The result of Campbell's work on Zimmer's material was two books, Myths and Symbols in Indian Art and Civilization and The King and the Corpse. Reading these books, it really is hard to tell where Zimmer leaves off and Campbell begins. And in many ways, these books are Campbell's, 
as much as they are Zoomers. But we must return to Thomas Mann. It's remarkable to think that Mann himself had read Campbell. Perhaps not as closely as Campbell read Mann, but Mann had in fact read A Skeleton Key to Finnegan's Wake and the aforementioned King and the Corpse. What a feeling that must have been for Campbell, knowing that his literary hero had been reading his work. To feel so in tune with Mann during the early stages of his own career must have been exhilarating for Campbell. But we must also remember that by 1970, Campbell had become somewhat disillusioned with Mann, and as I mentioned last month, perhaps even a little hurt by Mann's political activism, which, in his view, abandoned the philosophy of ars gratia artis, or art for art's sake. Professor Campbell thought that Mann injected a spirit of Saturnalia into the paper he delivered in celebration of Freud's 80th birthday. And I suppose in a way this is true. The Saturnalia was a time, usually in December, which was meant to celebrate the god Saturn. And this seems appropriate, given that much of Freud's personality leaned toward the Saturnine. Freud was certainly capable of biting the heads off, so to speak, of psychoanalytic heretics. During Saturnalia, slaves were treated as equals, and they were often waited on and served by their masters. But even more, it was a time for free speech, and members of the lower classes of society could speak their minds without fear of punishment. Now, Mann certainly brought this spirit of equality to his celebration of Freud's birthday, and he equated the literary arts with the psychological science, and I'm quoting now from Mann's remarks. But there has remained with me the desire for a psychological interpretation of knowledge and truth. I still equate them with psychology, and feel the psychological will to truth as a desire for truth in general. I still interpret psychology as truth in the most actual and courageous sense of the word. One would call the tendency a naturalistic one, I suppose, and ascribe to it a training in literary naturalism. It forms a precondition of receptivity for the natural science of the psyche, in other words, for what is known as psychoanalysis. Now, I think... If one is familiar with Freud, you can see Mann's point here. One sees exactly this in Freud's writing, particularly his case studies, which often seem to me, at least, to read like short stories. But Mann makes it clear he's placing Freud as an equal in the pantheon of literary artists such as Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, Victor Hugo, and Ibsen. He acknowledges that, due to Freud's influence, how differently we now read these authors. And in this discussion, Bert Lowenberg rightly mentions, and Campbell agrees, by the way, that Freud's lack of understanding of the history of the unconscious does not diminish his contributions. Mann does indeed speak much of himself, as he readily acknowledges early on in his address, saying, Perhaps you will kindly permit me to continue for a while in this autobiographical strain, and not take it amiss if, instead of speaking of Freud, I speak of myself. And indeed, I scarcely trust myself to speak about him. 
what new thing could I hope to say? But I shall also quite explicitly be speaking in his honor in speaking of myself, in telling you how profoundly and peculiarly certain experiences decisive for my development prepared me for the Freudian experience. As Professor Campbell says, Thomas Mann does utter the name of Jung and even offers some praise to Jung. But he also notes that while Jung is, quote, an able scion of the Freudian school, unquote, he is also, quote, unquote, ungrateful, and that some of Jung's most daring speculation would be inconceivable without Freud. There is, as both Thomas Mann and Joseph Campbell mature, an evolving fundamental difference in the way they see the world, indeed, in the way they see life itself. And we all know how painful it can be when someone we admire and care for, someone we love even, sees the world very differently than we do. I think Campbell explains his perception of life beautifully when he speaks to the idea that in Hinduism there can be no tragic literature because where you have a reincarnating principle, you can't have tragedy. From that perspective, life doesn't end. Our familiarity and personalized experience of it may end, but only until we pop up somewhere else as someone else. But even then, we're still a manifestation of the same life force, the same dynamism of life that continually expresses itself in many forms, in many places, and many lives. It seems clear to me that this is the perspective Campbell occupied. And where there is fundamentally no death, then the wars, the political misadventures, the terminal illnesses, the homicides, the fatal accidents are simply one more experience to have. This is, I believe, the attitude that allowed Campbell to remain so unconcerned about death. And if you'll notice, he really doesn't address death as a personal experience in his writing. Thomas Mann, on the other hand, was raised in a Protestant tradition and had a typically Western notion that we only have one life and the living of that life should leave the world in better shape than it was when we entered it. From this perspective, the world is fallen. It's imperfect. And it's only natural. Perhaps it's even imperative to want to correct its imperfections. For Campbell, the most important thing was his art, and art in general. Art stands alone for Campbell as the highest good, the noblest human achievement, and remains unbiased and affirming of all life. The whole catastrophe, as Zorba the Greek said. But because of the very different life experiences that shaped their philosophies of living, for Thomas Mann, the moral and the creative impulses were inseparable. Mann had no choice but to become a political activist and could not have lived any other way in the face of National Socialism and the tragedy it instituted. Even so, as Campbell points out by invoking the Gita-like ending of the Magic Mountain, in which Hans Castor, like Arjuna, goes to war without personal animus, without hatred, with a deep compassion for the living, 
and the dying, while simultaneously embracing the beauty, as the poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti once wrote, of lyric life itself. As always, thank you for listening. And please check out our other podcasts on the Joseph Campbell Foundation's Mythmaker Podcast Network at jcf.org. I also have a new book published by JCF called The Mythopoetic Impulse, and you can find the ebook version of it at jcf-shop.org. And I'll see you next month with another new episode of Pathways with Joseph Campbell. Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network. It is produced by Tyler Lapkin. Executive producer, John Booker. Your host has been Bradley Olson. Editing and audio services provided by Charles Mallet. All music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.